You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Turn up to Obadiah, if you can find it. Obadiah, it's the book that you've skipped past your whole life long. All right, all right. Love it when you guys are rowdy. If I haven't met you, my name's Jonathan, one of the pastors here. And, um, you know, in 2002, I was 21 years old. A fresh-faced young man. I say man, actually, I wasn't much of a man. It's, uh, I was a late developer, well into my 30s before I considered myself a man. When I was 21, I was uh, just drifting, drifting through life. I'd spent a couple of years traveling around the world, and then I spent uh, a couple of months traveling around Australia. I had three friends, and we all decided that we would pour our coins into um, buying an old camper van, and... Um, one of our friends was about to get married, so this is like his, his last stand, and um, I had decided I'd probably end up going to Bible college the next year, so it was my last you know, uh, shot at freedom. And so we bought this, this camper van, and we drove uh, from here to Adelaide, then right up the middle of Australia, then back down the East Coast. And um, it was great because it was, it was, we were so poor. Um, we, we literally didn't have money for food, so we just had to try and find stuff to eat. We had an, uh, an allowance of one apple per meal per day and one beer per week. And, so, and then whenever the temperature got over 30 degrees, which was all of the time, we had to turn the heater on full blast in our van just to, to stop it overheating. It was one of those trips. It was great. I loved it. Loved it. Um, came back just looking like a savage, like just torn clothes and black skin, and it was amazing. While we were there, we were, um, we, we, we were the, the best part of the trip was in northern, uh, the north of the Northern Territory, where you have all of these amazing places where you can pull over a van and just swim for the day. Um, Mataranka, um, in Mataranka there's this amazing oasis, we spent heaps of time there. We, we got kind of between there and Darwin and we, we had again been just blasting the heater for hours driving through the wilderness and we found this river uh, and got out and naturally just went straight for it, jumped in, swimming around. It was amazing because there was no one else there, like not a soul. Um, we spent probably about an hour swimming there before we had to get in and move away. And uh, there was this little waterfall that we were diving in and out of. There were all these, re- like, um, I don't know what it was, like weed in the water, and it was like competition to see who could swim through it without totally losing their mind with fear. It was really dark down there. And, um, and then after we'd spent time there, we walked up along this ridge where we could look down on the, the river below. And it was then that we saw for the first time, like 100 metres up from where we were swimming, these massive dark shapes in the water. <laughs> Dinosaurs, right? Like saltwater crocodiles. And uh, that's why there was no one else swimming in the water, because it was insane. I remember feeling like this palpable, just like wash flood of relief come over me. Like we just dodged a big bullet there. I wonder if you've ever experienced that. Like it's, it's this real rush 
of hot blood to the head kind of feeling, right? And, and then, a, then a, a, like a coming down period of relief. Whenever you've kind of had a brush with death, that's the feeling that you have. Like, take that and just turn it up a thousand times. That's how I felt um, when my boy Judah was born. It was his birthday, fifth birthday on Friday, just gone. And so that means it's five years since Renee died. And I don't mean metaphorically like he's a terrible son or something. I mean, like, literally, she died giving birth. We kind of had an inkling that she had an issue with her blood. Like, if, it's, if the wind's blowing hard outside, she gets bruised by it. So we knew something was... She doesn't really, right? But that's what, you know, she, she bruises easily is what I'm trying to say. Stay with me, guys. And um, so there was something, something going on with her blood, but we didn't realise until really she... she died from blood loss. She had had a 36-hour labour. She finally gave birth to this kid. Um, he wasn't breathing, so he and I went off to the NICU. They got him breathing okay. I came back to her room um, and found it just full of people who were panicking, doctors and nurses and people going crazy, and, uh, and her being wheeled off down the hallway, and someone came to me and said, yes, yeah, they have to operate on her now. She, they can't stop the bleeding. They can't stop the bleeding. I was like, well, I felt like, is this like the 14th century or something? Like, this doesn't happen anymore. People don't die in childbirth. But that was the very real possibility before us. And I asked if they could give me a room where I could just pray. And I, I went into the room. And the first thing I did, I, I didn't pray. I just got on the phone. It must have been four in the morning and rang Suzanne Hargrave in tears, just saying, can you please pray? Renee's dying. And uh, you can ask her more about this. She has bizarre, this bizarre experience, kind of out-of-body experience. She, they brought her back from the dead by pumping her full of her rare blood type, getting the guy out of bed who is like the best guy in the world at saving people's lives. All of that. It was just crazy, chaotic and the flood of relief when I went into the room and her eyes were open, she wasn't dead, was similar to the crocodile thing, just turned up a thousand times. That kind of feeling of relief, like, I was nearly dead, but I'm not dead. That I've, I've been rescued from an eventuality that would have been my demise. That kind of feeling is the feeling that every Christian feels at some point, every Christian who is saved who understands where they were going and now where they are headed because of what God has done for them. That's the feeling you feel. And you feel it initially, but like every near-death experience, the feeling you feel at the time tends to wear off. And so over the years, Christians kind of forget how close they were to condemnation and how grateful they ought to be for salvation. That's just, that's kind of just part of what it means to be a Christian. And, and I think part of what we do here is a rediscovery, a replaying, a reenacting of that experience. We know that we have been saved by grace and grace alone. That's why we preach the gospel over and over again, because we want people who are not yet Christians to understand what it means to be saved by God. And we want to remind Christians what it is to be saved by God, And I think this morning, something that God wants to do through Obadiah is just help us recapture that the essence of that feeling, that experience, that we've been saved. We've been saved, not just from 
uh, a meaningless life, but saved from God. That's ultimately who we've been saved from. We've been saved from God, from his justice, from his wrath, from his punishment. So let's jump into Obadiah and let's just see if that's what God does. That's what I've been praying for and now it's up to him to bring that about. But let's, let's jump into Obadiah. You'll see it's, the, it's only got a single chapter. It's the smallest book in the Old Testament. Uh, and, and from the first verse, we get a little inkling about what the book's about. So verse number one, Obadiah 1, the vision of Obadiah, this is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom. So, first of all, Obadiah is the guy who has the vision. Obadiah is the author of the book. That's all we know about him. Like, that's the whole thing. He wrote a book. We don't know anything else about him. He wrote the book. This is his vision of God's judgment. God's judgment on who? Well, primarily on Edom. Say, so what's Edom? Isn't that a mild, slightly nutty cheese from the Netherlands? That's Edam. Edom is totally different to Edam. Pay attention. Edam is the cheese. Edom is a nation. It's a nation, uh, neighbors of Israel, and they have this very interesting joined up history. So in order to know what Obadiah is about, you need to know who Edom is. And in order to know who Edom is, we have to do a little history tour. All right, so stay with me. We're going to move real quick through this. We're going to go start right back at the beginning in Genesis 25, okay? Genesis 25, 19 to 26. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Remember Abraham? He's the father of Israel. He was the guy that God brought out. He's just a pagan dude walking around in the wilderness. God says, you're going to be the father of my people. So he calls this guy. Abraham and Sarah have a son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Armenian from Padamaram, and sister of Laban, the Armenian. Aramean, not Armenian. That's a different place as well. testing you. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. (laughs) Uh, The Lord answered his prayer. I wasn't laughing at that. I was just... And his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Good idea. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So you have Isaac, uh, sorry, you have Esau and Jacob, these twin boys, and in the womb they're fighting each other. And all throughout their life they're fighting each other. You remember uh, Jacob tricks Esau out of his birthright, uh, and that's just indicative of their relationship. They're just two brothers fighting one another. For a period, they separate, and that makes things okay. But whenever they come back together, they kind of, there's this, there's this um, friction. 
It's kind of like, it's my younger brother's birthday today, Andrew, and um, my, our whole lives we have had this thing. It's like a Jacob and Esau kind of thing. Um, when we were younger, I guess I'm more like the Jacob character and he's more like the Esau. He came out, hair, he's hairier, bigger and stronger, and I used to make fun of him. So he, here's what would happen. I'm talking about like every day. I would use words to make him feel dumb and then he would punch me in the face. I don't know if you've ever been punched in the face. I've been hundreds of times. It really hurts. We get along really well now. He's like my best bud. That's not what happened. You know, you kind of grow up. You get out of that angsty kind of thing that you used to have in your friends now. That didn't happen with these guys. They were just, they were against one another. And, and here's why it matters for us. Because the line of Jacob that came from him were known as Israel. You notice that Jacob and Israel, the name is used kind of interchangeably in the, in the Bible. He's kind of renamed Israel. His people are Israel. And then Esau, he's also known as Edom. His family line, his progeny were known as Edomites. Esau is referred to as Edom. In fact, in this book, he'll refer to Edom and he'll refer to Esau interchangeably. So you've got these two brothers who are against one another from within the womb throughout their lives, and then the two nations that come from them are warring nations. They're just always against one another. Though they're brothers, though they're related to one another as nations, they have this grudge that they hold against one another. Up to the point, like 400 years later, listen what happens Um, the, the, the Israelites have been taken to Egypt, they've been enslaved we went through this in the Exodus, right they've been brought out of Uh, of Egypt, they've spent like 35 years walking in circles because they're just, they're they're not sharp and um, actually they're just not obedient And, and so at this point they're really really quite keen to get to the promised land that God has given to them and they come to uh, a place called Kadesh, and here's what happens. Numbers chapter 20. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom, saying, this is what your brother, your brother Israel says. You know about all the hardships that have come on us. Our ancestors went down to Egypt, and we lived there many years. The Egyptians mistreated us and our ancestors. But when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our cry and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. Now we are here at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your country. We will not go through any field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We will travel along the king's highway and not turn to the right or to the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom answered, you may not pass through here. If you try, we will march out and attack you with the sword. The Israelites replied, we will go along the main road, and if we or our livestock drink any of your water, we will pay for it. We only want to pass through on foot, nothing else. Again they answered, you may not pass through. Then Edom came out against them with a large and powerful army. Since Edom refused to let them go through their territory, Israel turned away from them. So this thing is playing out 400 years later, like, bury, bury the hatchet, you know, no. It's only becoming more and more solidified, this hatred they have for one another, even to the point where some refugees want to walk through your property and you say, we'll kill you if you try. That's bad enough. I mean, 
At best, that's an irritation. At worst, it's an injustice. But it's nothing compared to what Edom did to Israel when Babylon came and besieged the city and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. So you read about this in 2 Kings 25. We won't go through it because it's extensive and honestly, it's just a bit dark. You can read it yourself. Babylon, this great superpower, comes and besieges the city, starves the people within it and eventually break through and utterly destroy everything. They, you know, like poke the eyes out of the king. They slaughter his family. They take most of the people who are of any use and exile them into Babylon. And all the while, Edom, the brother nation of Israel, is sitting there, not only not intervening, not only kind of enjoying what's happening, but, but laughing. Laughing is what, at the destruction and the slaughter of their brother nation. So back into Obadiah in in verse 10 to 14. This is what it says. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day, this is the day of destruction at the hands of Babylon. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. This is what happened as people fled from the city. Maybe, just maybe, maybe I've got I I wasn't destroyed as the soldiers came through the walls. I survived starvation sometimes by having to we won't even go there. Like what they had to do to survive that siege was just ugh. But finally, I'm on the run now. Maybe I can make it to the forest. Maybe I can make it to a safe place. But there waiting for me is my brother Edom, waiting to cut down the survivors, waiting to sell them back to the Babylonians for their own profit, waiting to take up the land for themselves. And so you can see where the the source of this great hatred has come from. It not only began in the womb, of Rebecca, but it was played out over hundreds and hundreds of years. And, 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 and if you want to get a sense of how Israel feels about Edom, then just read Psalm 137. It's a psalm of cursing. It's a liturgical curse that they recited in their worship gatherings. And, and, it's, and it goes back to when they were exiled in Babylon. They sat by the rivers. The Babylonians were saying, sing us some of your songs. And they're like, how can we sing about Jerusalem when we're exiled from Jerusalem? How can we sing songs to our God when we don't have a temple? 
They're grieving. It's a psalm of lament. It says, if I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy, and then the curse. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Hatred. Now, praise God, we know a better way than this. We heard from Jesus' own lips two weeks ago that we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We are to bless those who curse. But when you see the history of this nation, Israel and what they've been through, what they've been through at the hands of their own brothers and sisters, you can see where some of this vitriol comes from. It's fresh. So that's Edom. That's that's the, 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 the nation that Obadiah is focused on in his very short vision, his very short book, the collection of his poetic vision that he has from God concerning not only the judgment of Edom, but we're going to see the judgment of the nations. Edom, the nation that betrayed us. Edom, the nation that laughed as we were slaughtered. Edom, the ones who cut us down when we had some hope of escape. Edom, those, that nation that thinks they're so much better than us. Our history is one of enslavement and wandering and homelessness. They live up in the cliffs. They live up in the heights. You can see it today. There's in, in these desert cliffs, rocky outcrops. They live right up there, like literally higher than everyone else. And it produced in them this great pride. We are superior to the Israelites. Esau got final victory over Jacob. So he says, verse 3 to 4, this is what he says about Edom. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live up in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down. Down, declares the Lord. And on, verse 6 to 9, he says, How Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. It's this, this great declaration of God's coming judgment 
on Edom. By the way, it was only a few years later that Babylon turned their attentions to Edom. So Obadiah's, his, 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 I was going to say letter, his, um, his book here, his vision, this poetic manifestation or manifesto of God's judgment is all about Edom. It's all about what's coming to Edom. They're going to get what they deserve. It's retributive justice. They did this, they will get this coming to them. But it's really interesting. Right in the middle, there's this hinge verse in verse 15. And Obadiah makes this switch. He just flips it. Or he doesn't flip it, he, he spreads it. He suddenly spreads his, his prophetic message of judgment from Edom to the world. So just when we thought this is all just for Edom and we were doing okay, he says, no, everyone is in the same boat. Verse 15 to 16. The day of the Lord, remember we've heard that over and over again, the day of the Lord, this is the day of justice and judgment. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they have never been. That's not a description of a, like a keg party, all right? They're not drinking beer. They're drinking God's wrath. This is a, an analogy used throughout the Bible. Those who are judged by God and under his punishment are drinking his wrath. They drink and drink until they're drunk on his anger. That's why he says, after you've drunk and drunk and drunk, it's as if you have never been. It's utter destruction at the hands, not of Babylon or some nation, at the hands of God. And he says, that is what's coming to all the nations. So, we thought this was about Edom and Israel, but as with all of the minor prophets, and we're going to see this in all 12, as with all the minor prophets, there's a local temporal context that they're preaching into, but there's also something much, much, much bigger going on. This is not just about Edom and Israel. This is about those who are God's people and those who aren't. This is about those who are God's enemies and those who are God's children. And so Israel represents God's people of all nations. Not just those Jews, but God's people of all nations are Israel. And Edom represents God's enemies of all nations. He doesn't discriminate on the basis of nationality, he has his people of all nations, Israel, and he has his enemies of all nations, Edom. The question this morning is, which one are you? Who do you belong to? The truth is that we all, by nature and choice, belong to Edom. That's who we belong to. We were born into Edom. Nature and choice. If it was up to us, we're choosing Edom every time. We want to live up on the cliffs, not wander around in the wilderness. All of us belong 
to Edom. In fact, it's really interesting. I don't know very much about Hebrew, not as much as I should, but the, the two names, Edom and Adam in Hebrew, are the same, written with the same letters. Edom and Adam. You know, Adam, Adam means humanity. And I think what's going on here for Obadiah, he's, he's letting us know that that, Ed, that, that Edom isn't just Edom. Edom is representative of humanity. That in a sense, all of us are Edom. And all of us deserve what's coming to Edom. Because we're in Adam, we are in Edom. What's coming to Edom? We've, we've, given a, we've been given a little view into it there. Let's keep reading. It doesn't get any better. Verse 15 to 18, he says, The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head, just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire, and Joseph a flame. Esau, Edom, humanity will be stubble and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau, from Edom, from humanity. The Lord has spoken. That is, this is the way it's going to be. There is no way out. The destiny for those of Edom is to drink the cup of God's wrath, to be the the receivers of his divine justice. You get this very same kind of imagery in Revelation chapter 14. You're saying, well, this is just Old Testament angry God. You know, we've got the, the, the meek, mild version now. No. Revelation chapter 14, they too will drink the wine of God's fury which has been poured out full strength, not watered down, full strength, into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. That's a picture of God's final retributive justice. That is a picture of the day of the Lord, the day when Jesus comes again, not only to restore all that's good, but to judge all that's evil. So what do you do? Like, what, what, what are we meant to do with this? We've been born into Edom. We're, we're Adam. We're humanity. We deserve God's justice. We, we deserve to drink the cup of his wrath undiluted. What do we do with this? How do we hide? Where do we run? How do we escape? We're God's enemies bound for destruction. Here's what you do. It's good news. Here's what you do. You remember that there was one who went before you and drank the cup of God's wrath on your behalf. There is one who has gone before you who took that cup and drained it on your behalf. 
You remember that painstaking, heart-wrenching scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus knows what's coming. He's been on this path his whole life. He's been on this path into eternity past. He's been on this path to Golgotha, on this path to the cross, and he's come to the night where it's all going to go down. This is what happens, right, in Matthew. We read Matthew 26. Going a little farther, right, into the Garden of Gethsemane, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. And you see the blood dripping from his pores. A medical condition that happens under the most severe stress a human can experience. The capillaries in your face break. As he sweats drops of blood, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. You remember that Jesus did the will of his father and drank the cup every drop. The truth is, guys, by nature, by choice, we are citizens of Edom. We are destined to receive God's just punishment for our rebelliousness and our sin. Our destiny is to drink the cup of his wrath undiluted forever to be utterly destroyed as Esau, as Edom. To remember that we are, and we are Edom, we are God's enemies. What we need saving from is not poor self-esteem. What we need saving from is God. from justice. And so we need to remember there was one who drank the cup on our behalf. We need to remember that in drinking that cup, he turned us, he took us, he transferred us from being God's enemies to being God's sons. Romans 5 if you haven't got it tattooed, then you're being disobedient. Romans 5, 6 to 10. You see, you see, everyone, right? Listen. Paul wants you to see something. Open your blind eyes. See at just the right time. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. There are people who come to church and say, I'm not, I'm, I, God couldn't forgive me. God couldn't love me. You know, you don't understand what I've done in my life. Wrong. Christ didn't die for the good church boys in their knitted sweaters. He died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It goes on. 
Since we have now been justified, that's made right, forgiven by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? What are we saved from? God's wrath through him. For if, while we were God's enemies, while we were Edom, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? That's the gospel. That's good news. Right now, you should be experiencing a little bit of that flood of relief. You are on a trajectory by nature and by choice towards God's wrath and condemnation. Jesus drank the cup for you, and in his death, he turned you from being a slave into being a son. He took you from being God's enemy to now being his child. That's the good news. If you do not yet know that, if you haven't yet received that, I'm telling you, that's why you're here this morning. It wasn't to kill a couple of hours on a Sunday morning. God brought you here so that you would hear and receive that. That's all you can do. You can't buy it. You can't buy it with money or church attendance or singing loudly or nothing. Even coming to the AGM later today is not going to make you right with God. All you can do is hear it and believe it. I'm going to pray now that we would, each one of us, receive it. Let's do it. Father, just acknowledge this morning, maybe for the first time, that each one of us, men, women, children, people of all nations, rich people, poor people, good people, bad people, each one of us, is Edom. All of us are your enemies by nature and by choice. We were powerless to be anything but that. And yet, Father, we praise you. God, we thank you that while we were powerless, you sent your son to die for us. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you that where you could have run from drinking that cup, you instead were faithful. You drank it on our behalf. There's nothing left for us to drink. And it was all because of the love, the love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. If any of us doubts your love this morning, Father, please take us to the cross. Show us the greatest demonstration of your love. We are blood-bought children. I pray that we would know it. I pray for those of us who are wayward, rebellious Edomites, those of us who, like the prodigal son, have run away from the father, cursed him. Please bring us home, even now, even as we stand and sing, bring home your children.
Lord, please wash over us a great sense of relief, a great sense of gratitude for all that you've done for us through your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.